Speak to us, O God, in that quiet whisper. May our hearts be so quiet that we can hear your eternal word and truth. Enable us to to hear that truth and then act upon it so that we are not just Sunday Christians, but we are Monday followers. We pray this in Christ's name and may God's people say, Amen. Amen. We are again in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, starting at the 27th verse. Hear now God's word. Jesus and his disciples went on into the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but who, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The word of the Lord. This, this text, this text is quite interesting and, and troubling at the same time if we're really listening to the words. If we're really listening, we will see an argument between Jesus and Peter. Notice the harsh words going back and forth in quick succession. After Peter and Jesus' major confrontation, where Jesus explains that he must die, Jesus turns to his followers and says, If you want want the test of being my followers, ask yourselves, are you willing to die? That's in essence what he's saying here. Are you willing to die? With those razor-sharp words cutting into our ears, we see the subject in this text, and for us this morning, is frankly our death. Our death. What a crowd-quieting topic to talk to you about, isn't it? We're embarking on a new education season with a new educator We're doing a lot of planning. We're doing a lot of dreaming for the future of the church. Yet I'm embarrassed to say to you that I am more comfortable preaching to you the death of Christ our Lord who gave himself for the life of the world than say to you we must take up our cross and follow. We must take up our cross and die. We must take up our cross and die as individuals and as a church. It's uncomfortable. Do you feel it? It's uncomfortable. I was in Newburn, as I just said, going through my, some of my dad's things with my sister, and she reminded me of a season of struggle in our family. I'd forgotten about it. 
It was in the fall of, of the late 90s, and my father was going into the hospital for heart surgery. He had a heart valve repair. And right before he was scheduled to have this done, I got a call from, from my mom, and she called and said, Eddie, I need you home. And so I left almost immediately and drove the four hours from, from seminary to the the house, and when I arrived, my mother, my father, and my sister were all seated around the table, and around that table there was a list of documents that, that Dad ha was going over. He had his will. He had his properties that he owned. He had his insurance coverages. He had his personal affairs, his bank accounts, all that stuff in order. He wanted to go over that stuff. It was a heavy, heavy visit. But what was my dad doing? What was he trying to do there? He wanted us to know that he was remembering us. He was caring for us. He was loving us. And that's what I think, why I think we're having this discussion right now. It's because I love you. I care for you and I want you to remember that. And I think Jesus was along that same lines. So why speak to you now of death? Well, before we begin, I want to have a word of explanation. I want to state clearly that we should not run around like Chicken Little and say, we're going to die, we're going to die, we've got to die, we should die. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we should be gloomy. Nor do I have a coroner's report for the death of the church. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think we are to deal with the subject of death by the fact that the word became flesh. In other words, if our Lord and Savior was tempted in every way that we were and are, but stopped short of death, then how can our Savior bear our griefs and know our sorrows? Jesus insisted that we talk about death as we're pointing ourselves towards Christ returning into the world. And frankly, it's time that we talk about this painful, difficult topic because if God becoming flesh doesn't include death, what's the point? What's the hope for our future? He is our assurance. He's our reason for hope. And when we talk about it, when we claim it, we can say with Paul with that full confidence that by our baptism, we participate in Christ's death and we rise to a new life like him. The Greek word literally and for the Baptist among us, because <laughs> I know you're there. <laughs> for the Baptist among us, the Greek word that Paul chooses there is literally buried with Christ in a tomb. That gives credence to, to a full submersion baptism. And that future is continued in the life of every Christian. So to speak of our death as individuals and as a church, as awkward and painful as it is, we are really speaking about our future. It depends. It depends on our being willing to discuss, frankly, and opening our own going to the cross. It's ironic that talking of death is really discussing our future, don't you think? It's kind of strange. And it's not a pleasant topic, the subject of our crosses and death. Not only must I talk about it because of the incarnation, but Jesus himself commands us that we talk about it. Notice in our text, it's right there. When Jesus introduces the subject of his own death, he introduces the subject of our death. 
It's in our text this morning. Did you hear it? Look at verse 31 where Mark tells us, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. He must be killed and, and after three days rise again. And if that's not hard enough to hear, he, takes, he goes further. He takes it up another notch in verse 34, and he makes a bold and jarring statement when he says, Then he called the crowds along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Drop mic. A cross. A death instrument. Follow me. The cross is a death instrument. It's analogous to, you know, we beautify it up. We have this beautiful brass cross. We wear these things on our earrings. I don't, but some people do. They wear crosses on their ears. They wear it around their neck. But frankly, it's a death instrument. It's two pieces of wood slapped together. The, analog the analogous statement that we have here is the death chair, the electric chair. Jesus was not anxiously anticipating his death. In fact, John records that Jesus hid out in the garden, away from the people in the city. And when the hour of his death came close enough for him to taste it, he didn't really embrace it at first, not at all. He claims, my God, my God, please, anything is possible for you. Please, not this. Yet he goes anyway. And it's in that resisting death and the idea of the cross with Jesus and I think was a little poem. This story reminds me of a little poem by Carl Charles Sandburg. He wrote it. It's called The Thornway. I encourage you to look it up. It's a little bitty poem. Not a lot of people know about it. Mr. Sandburg writes this. He said, take up your cross. Take up your cross and go the thorn way. And if a sponge of vinegar be offered to you on the tip of a spear, accept it. Accept it. Souls are woven of endurance. God knows. God knows. So we don't know how soon Jesus knew of his own death, but we know that he was talking about it in our text. Jesus also, we know, found it difficult to talk about. One of my favorite stories is also in the book of John, which says that when the Greeks came searching for Jesus, he said, there is a law in nature that says a seed has to die when it falls to the ground. Unless it does so, it will buy, abide there alone. It has to die to give life. You remember that? You remember that story? And so it is that any of us who wish to be my disciples will be like the seed and will take up their crosses and die. Now what, I, what must I say? Father, make me exempt from this? No. I got to take it up too. It was very difficult for Jesus to talk to his disciples about it. Of course it was. His disciples didn't like to talk about it. It always is. Like my family's conversation with my dad, the heaviness that was there, our own death is not a subject easily brought up and, and easily pursued. And the difficulty of it was what is in what was his death was meaning to him and his friends. It meant his going to a cross. The last time I saw my grandmother was Thanksgiving. It was Thanksgiving, I think it was 2000 and 2002. She must have known that she was going to die soon. 
because at one point in the, all the flurry that Thanksgiving has, she pulled me aside and she said, the great pain of my death is not thinking of my own death. For that's not really where I have some experience, rather the thought of what it does to those that I love. What about my family, especially my three daughters? What will it do for them? What will their pain be like? I worry about that. And when she died, there was pain. Pain for her and for us. Yet Jesus brought it up with his disciples in today's text, and the subject creates such an unusual response in our text this morning. Like when my father began to talk about his will, one would have thought there would have been a heavy silence. Death is, is such a private topic. We just don't say anything about it. It creates such an unusual response in this case. But it's not unusual when we pause and really think about it. Look at Peter's strong response. Look at his strong response. He says, no, no, not you, Lord. You can't die now. Peter's reaction was normal, don't you think? It was normal. It was normal because the strongest thing that we know is life. Life is tenacious. It's difficult to die. If you visit a maternity ward, you'll see evidence there of how strong life is when you look at those little babies. Those little babies that are so small. Those little babies that are so tiny. I remember Kathy Bayshore. I remember Kathy Bayshore who graduated seminary with me. She, got, she was pregnant and she had to have a, a C-section early. They took the baby. The baby was about the size of a stick of butter. Her name was little Susie. And I got to celebrate her fifth birthday with her. After several surgeries for her heart and all the other things. Life is so tenacious. Little Susie is an example of that. I learned this when I witnessed a snake killing when I was bo a boy. My uncle, my cousins, and my dad were out shooting their guns in the woods. My dad was a military officer. He was a, a sniper, if you will. He was quite good at the right, with his rifle. He was number six in the country at one point. My dad was, was a, take, would take the males out, and, and it was a rite of passage for the men to take their male child when they hit a certain age and go out and shoot a gun. I was eight years old, so I was too little. They wouldn't allow me to go, so I waited. And I waited and I waited and I waited for their return. And soon they came back carrying their rifles. They, they took them and put them in their cars. We went inside with my mom, my aunts, and my cousins, and we had lunch. When we finished, it was time for my cousin's family to leave. And they all went to their cars. And in the back of, of the house, I, was, I had to go back in the house to get something. I don't even remember what it was, but I had to go back in. And when I got inside, I heard several loud squeals, and I ran to see what was going on. And as I got to the door, I saw my uncle lift a, a gun to his, his a rifle to his shoulder and fired off several shots. And there was a snake, an eastern diamondback rattlesnake that was about seven foot long that he had shot in the head. It was huge. It was huge. But now his head was gone. My dad threw the snake over a fence in the yard, and I watched closely. I don't know about you, but snakes and I, I watched closely that snake all day. It had been over the fence, and I watched it. I watched it, and I watched that little, little tail twitch all day long. I looked it over at Dad, and I said, Dad, I don't think you killed him. 
And dad says, oh, he doesn't have his head anymore. He's dead. Well, why doesn't he hurry up? And dad said something to me that day. He said, a snake never dies before sundown. Well, I tell you, for the rest of that day, I was walking around looking at that snake. <laughs> I kept looking at that fence and seeing that little wiggle on his tail. The last picture of the close of that day when I was outside was me looking over at that snake that was still wiggling. I think Dad's saying pointed out something about the mystery of life and how tenacious it is, how tough it is. And it's no wonder that Peter rebukes Jesus and they get into an argument and tempers are flaring going back and forth. Jesus even says Peter has a demon. Think about that. Your master tells you you've got a demon. That's tough. Hmm. The subject's clear. The lines are drawn. And the last picture at the close of the day was Jesus talking to his disciples. If you would follow after me, you must deny yourselves and take up the cross. Do you feel Peter's tension here? Do you feel Peter's tension? Friends, I think Jesus was meaning we must be willing to sacrifice it all in order to live. I think that's where he's going with this. Listen to another place where Jesus is talking about his own death. His own death. It's at the end of Matthew 25. There's a series of kingdom parables there where Jesus tells the parable about the separation of the sheep and the goats. Remember that one? Remember that there are some who, is, who will live and some who will die. You recall that conversation? It's right before Jesus goes into Jerusalem. It's the last thing he tells his disciples before he goes in there. He wants them to remember that. It's like the exclamation point saying, if you forget everything else, remember this. Remember this. The question was, Jesus, when do we do it to you? And Jesus says, you do it to me when you do this. He says, I was alone and had no one in my world. My husband died. My children live in another state. I had to move into a nursing home. Did you or did you not come visit me? I was in prison. I was in prison, cut off from society for my misdeeds. A criminal, yes, but still a human being. Did you or did you not come visit me? I was hungry. I was hungry, peering into a world filled with banquets and diets. I saw more food flushed down the disposal after one meal than my entire family has eaten this week. Did you or did you not offer me something to eat? I was without clothing, looking into the shops of the windows and the wardrobes of the world. I waited for styles to change because when the styles change, I might get your old coat or your cast-off dress or jeans. Did you or did you not offer me something to wear? I was a stranger. New at the job in the city, I moved in next door to you in an apartment building. I didn't know a soul. Did you or did you not visit me? Did you or did you not introduce yourself to me? I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about giving up our lives, going to our crosses. The church that gives itself advocates and lives out the gospel, working for those who don't have a voice. It means to give without regard of our continuing in light of our budgets and bottom line. It means giving 
and maybe turning the lights off in the church and realizing some things. We spend a lot of money on the edifice here, a lot of money. Now, I realize that's difficult to consider, yet maybe contrary to our society's wishes, we shouldn't live by principle that ministry and church makes us feel good. According to Jesus, the only way, the only way, and by that I mean the only way that a church can avoid dying is to give its life on behalf of those who need help. By the way, did you remember that little poem that I said earlier about Carl Charles Sandburg? Remember I read it to you earlier? He said these words were really not addressed by Jesus and to Jesus. Mr. Sandberg says it's a message that he wanted addressing the church. Listen as Sandberg challenges us. Take up your cross and go the thorn way. And if a sponge of vinegar be added to uh, offer to you on a tip of a spear, accept it. Accept it. Souls are made of endurance. God knows. God knows.